Welcome to episode 18 and the final episode of season one of the In the Name of Service podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Here we broadcast stories of everyday men and women who've answered a call to serve in hopes of inspiring and catalyzing the rest of us to follow suit in our own way. Today's interview is with Brett Crozier, recently retired Navy captain and operations lead for the California-based nonprofit Veterans Village of San Diego. As a part of his 30-year Navy career, Brett was the ultimate go-getter, his drive fueled by an insatiable desire to learn, grow, and improve. He graduated from the Navy Academy in Annapolis, became a helicopter pilot, then a fighter pilot, and a U.S. Navy nuclear power school graduate, and finally, the appointment that ultimately drew the world's focus onto him in March 2020, commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the most prestigious carrier in the U.S. fleet. That's when COVID-19 spread through the ship like wildfire, leading Brett to take steps that protected the lives of his 5,000 sailors, ultimately led to his dismissal. And he wouldn't change a thing about it. Brett is the ultimate paradox, a career military professional whose exploits led to the highest levels of leadership, but also a kind, gentle, and forthright human being whose philosophies on living a better life make him extremely approachable. In his book, Surf When You Can, Lessons in Life, Loyalty, and Leadership from a Maverick Navy Captain, Brett reflects on his life, career, and commitment to doing the right thing in a book that celebrates the power of kindness, the importance of teamwork, and the value of standing up for what you believe in. Through a series of captivating stories set all around the world, he takes us along the grand adventures of his extraordinary career and introduces the incredible people he met along the way. Among the unexpected lessons included in its pages are, when in doubt, be kind, never turn down an espresso, learn like you're going to live forever, stand up for what you believe in, no matter the consequences, and of course, surf when you can. I hope this conversation drives home the idea that anyone, and I mean anyone, can start right now making an impact in the world around them. For more information on Brett, his book Surf When You Can, or Veterans Village of San Diego, please see the show notes. Thank you for listening. Right, sir. I'm going to have a hard time not calling you sir, by the way, just because of my <laughs> military background, but I'll try to call you Brett. Um, Brett's good. Okay. For Welcome to the In the Name of Service podcast. Uh, for Thanks. those of listeners that may not know you, if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Brett Crozier. I grew up in California, uh, joined the Navy. Joined the Navy to fly. That's really what I wanted to do. And then uh, stayed ultimately for the people, but um, served for 30 years. Through that 30 years, I flew helicopters for 10 years. I flew fighters for the the next 10 or 15 years and then rose in rank and command. So I ultimately had command of an aircraft carrier that had helicopters and fighters and uh, and uh, served on board the Theodore Roosevelt and then spent another couple of years here in San Diego on the staff, still flying and finally just retired last summer. And, and now I found myself running operations for a, for a large nonprofit focused on homeless veterans and veterans struggling with like drug abuse stuff here in the San Diego and Southern California region. 
Interesting. I did not know about the nonprofit. Do you mind saying the name of it or? Yeah, it's, it's called Veterans Village of San Diego. And it's, uh, we serve okay. about 3,000 veterans and their families in the local area every year. So yeah, it's, it's a good, good, important work. Wow. Going way back, I know you said you joined the Navy to fly. What initially <laughs> led you to choose military service over maybe like civilian flying career? Or some other path. So my my yeah, my dad was in the Air Force. Um, so he went to ROTC at San Diego State and joined the Air Force. And he really wanted to fly. He was colorblind, and despite his attempts at like memorizing the colorblind charts and stuff, he couldn't fly. <laughs> which which is probably good. It was Vietnam at the time, and and certainly it would have been a more dangerous career path for him. But um, but that probably exposed me to military airplanes at a young age. We, I think I was born in Las Vegas on Nellis Air Force Base. So that's where the Thunderbirds are. And so I had airplanes flying around uh, when I was a young kid and that probably planted the seed. And so I actually, that's what I wanted to always do. I just wanted to fly in the military because to me it was about being fast and loud and, and flying something cool. And, and all I knew was Air Force, but a little movie came out in 1986 that some people heard about called, <laughs> called Top Gun. And, and so that, I know sadly I'm admitting that, but uh, some of my buddies will make fun of me, but but it, that opened my eyes to the, the Navy and the role of aviation in the Navy. And uh, so I, I ended up applying to the Naval Academy. I, to be honest, I just wanted to fly. Like I would have gone right to flight school and yeah. I would have skipped college and, and I would have skipped high school, to be honest. But um, luckily, there was adults involved in the decisions at the time and the recommendations <laughs> were not to, to follow that because that doesn't work out. And I uh, went to the Naval Academy and that's and that was got me got me to flight school. And, and I did. I literally I joined to fly. That's what I wanted to do. And But I didn't stay for that. I you know, Like I said earlier, I, I stayed for the people and all the experiences and the places I got to live and the adventures I had. And I said I'd stay till. So I stopped having fun or the Navy kicked me out. And when you hit 30 as a captain, that's the Navy essentially says you're done anyway. So, right. uh, but I had fun all along the way. Uh, every single tour, I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun and there were hard days. Absolutely. And there was hard moments, but, uh, but I had a really enjoyable time along the way with all the people I got to serve with. Yeah. Yeah. You make it seem so easy. You joined to fly and then you flew. There's a lot in between there. I know, I know that. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, since you've been out for just a tad bit now reflecting on 30 years which is almost impossible to say in like one single right. question <laughs> Re reflecting yeah. on your 30 years you have had some time to do that you've written a book about it which helps process some of those experiences yes. what yes. stands out now as having been the most meaningful thing for you personally i it kind of goes back to the relationships i built along the way um you know i, I met my wife that we now have been married almost 29 years. Uh, she was not in the service. She's a Navy brat, but, but I met her while I was in flight school and, um, and that I met hundreds of people, uh, that, that I learned from each and every one of them. So, you know, in, in the book, it was, it was me trying to tell stories, not just about me personally, but about the people I met and the people I learned from along the way. Uh, and to me, life is about relationships. Life is about your personal relationships at home, your, you know, relationships at work and, or just the person you sit next to on the subway. I think there's so much you can, we can all learn from one another, but you have to be confident enough to, to open yourself up. You have to be confident enough to, to be willing to ask questions you don't know. And, um, throughout my career, I, that's what I remember. I remember sharing espresso with Luigi in Italy or sharing tea with the Colonel Egyptian in Egypt or the, you know, the young sailor I met on the fantail on the Roosevelt. I mean, all of them collectively, I think are what I really enjoy and remember. And it's, it's, yeah, writing a book, it's, you know, written out as thought out, right? And so I, I did want to reflect on my time in the service. I wanted a way to to thank everybody I served with, all the men and women I was lucky enough to sail or fly or fight with. 
or lead in some cases or follow. I think I also wanted to share those stories in a way that they resonated well beyond the military because I think most of the lessons I try to capture or apply, whether you're in the military, whether you work at Starbucks, whether you drive Uber, whether you work in the corporate world or whether you work in a nonprofit. And that was kind of how my goal was to share those stories and what I was lucky enough to learn along the way with a, a wider, wider audience. And then also kind of just make sure people knew that um, for me, I loved everything about the military. And it's, for me, it's a family business. I had uh, I had two of my three sons have served in the military. Uh, you know, it's a my father served in the military, my grandfather. So, you know, the Navy for me is a family business. I'm not in it anymore. I can grow my hair a little bit longer and I can sleep <laughs> in a little bit longer and surf more, certainly. But right. um, but yeah, it was, it was an enjoyable process to write it and hopefully it resonates and hopefully the story about that life's about relationships uh, resonates with people no matter where you are because I think that's important. Yeah, I think it does. I knew when I just opened the book and read the names of the chapters that it was going to be so... <laughs> fun to read and it really was um also kind of a reflective question but what do you think um was most difficult for you personally uh it can i mean you can speak to a period of time or a specific you know incident yeah i don't i don't know there was specific time i think collectively it was the time away from home i'm um, i grew up with a pretty close family and had younger sisters i just you know we were always we were running around. We always had sports and activities as kids, but we always took family vacations and we always, you know, my dad always came home from work and I had a tight knit family and a group of friends. Uh, and I, in my entire life, I think that I, you know, I moved maybe once or twice when I was young and didn't remember, but lived in the same hometown until I graduated high school. So I think it was a time away in the military when you're having to say goodbye to your family on the pier and you're watching all your sailors say goodbye to their families or their pregnant wives or their young kids and, and, you know, single mothers leaving kids behind with their, with grandmothers. That's, that is the hardest part in my opinion about the military. And that never, there was never a moment where I didn't leave, get underway, take off on a plane, knowing I'd be gone for a while and kind of in your heart, you're like, this kind of sucks. This is the worst part. Like I'm never doing this again. And and then, (laughs) you know, I'm never, this is the last deployment ever. And then of course you forget by the time it's all over, you know, I think if it, I think you can really grow relationships if you do it right um, with that separation, but that's never, yeah. that's never easy. And, and it's even harder probably in today's generation where we're so connected, um, you know, with a phone and everything else. And, and although you can have connections when you're at sea now more than we ever did, you're still away. And so people, especially younger generations that are joining the military, that's something they have to go through that they're, mm-hmm. you know, to how do you, how do you find those connections to make up for the ones you're, you're leaving behind. I think, I think that's still probably the hardest part about any kind of service is you're some kind of sacrifice and it's, and it's generally the people back home that you're, you're leaving um, and you're, you have to hope they're doing okay. And they do. I had a strong yeah. wife who actually ran things probably better when I was gone, but <laughs> <laughs> more structured yeah. certainly. Right. You do get into a rhythm. Yeah. Um, yeah. When your spouse is away, but Isn't it interesting, though, that two of your sons decided, you know, obviously it wasn't traumatic enough, you being away all this time and doing these great things for them not to follow in your footsteps in some sense. So, yeah, although if you were to ask them, they might shake their head like, what was I thinking? Like, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) I should have known better. I should have known better. No, they they've done amazing things. And and, uh, the oldest is already out doing other things. And uh I was proud that he he signed up and did what he did, and my middle son is still in, and and I'm watching that. You know, you get to live vicariously through them. But yes, despite the 20 moves and 30 years and everything else, and new schools for them, they somehow th- figured that was the path. And I think that's 
that's probably natural because it's also what they're most comfortable with, having watched me go through a career mm-hmm. and, and always enjoy what I was doing and telling sea stories and flying stories. I think they probably they came to get pretty used to that. Although my youngest son wants nothing to do with it. So I guess there's the, <laughs> you got both like, the spectrum. Out. Right. That's right. I'm like, I'm out. Uh, looking at, you know, your military service, you served in a great variety of roles and you went into fly, but you did so much more leading. I'm just going to assume was as difficult or more difficult than learning to fly and flying itself. But how did you continue to stay motivated all those years? Um, I th- I think as you, I think what's the thing about leadership, right, is when you find yourself in charge, so to speak, and you're leading larger groups, I think you become more cognizant of the fact that people are looking to you for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, Napoleon said that leaders are dealers of hope, right? Meaning that if you want to be a strong leader, you have to be hopeful, you have to be inspiring, and and you can't be inspiring if you're complaining about the Navy. You can't be inspiring if you're, if you're, you know, complaining about being gone because they're all going through the same thing. So I always tried, I, I guess I took that to heart and I knew that I was, I was trying to set a good example. And, and even though I was, you know, was sad to be leaving my family, I also knew that, well, I got 5,000 other people on board that are also sad to believe their family. So be recognize that, but, but don't walk around and feel sad for yourself. Know that, you know, you've got experience, you've done this a few times. Now's the time to be that dealer of hope, right? To be, be inspiring and tell them it's going to be okay. And, and it's going to be better when you get back and all that stuff. And, and so I think I, I found that as a leader, I was, I was always inspired by the people I was trying to lead, which whether they knew it or not, they were, they were my inspiration. Was there ever a time when you, experience some lows leading to burnout or whether you, you know, question whether your investments were worthwhile? Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm sure there were moments like when deployments were, you know, you left on a six month deployment and then next thing you know, it's seven months and then it's eight months and it's nine months. And, and you, one of the ways you deal with separation is you start counting the days, right? I mean, you count the days the day you start, um, which means your counts up whether it's 180 or whatever for a six month deployment or longer. So there were moments, I think, when, when things change as they do in the military and operations dictated, um, when, when those deployments became longer, those were tough. Um, but also when you lost people, right? I mean, there's, there's risk to everything you do in life and even more so in the military and anyone that served at all knows the moments where you've lost somebody, whether you knew them or not, you served with them and, it didn't matter what the circumstance, you know, that, that where it takes a toll. And that's, those are the hard moments. I don't know. Again, I, I never felt like I was going to give up. I just knew that those were harder than others, particularly when, again, if you're a leader, it's really incumbent upon you to, you know, you can mourn and, but you still got to motivate and you got to, to lead. So I thought those were times when, I, don't, I mean, I don't know I would have done any differently. I just know that when you're in charge and those things happen, um, I know it takes a toll, you know, no matter because you feel ultimately responsible and ultimately accountable right. for what happens. So whether you knew that particular sailor or not, or the circumstance by which, you know, he or she, you know, might've got hurt or, or worse. Um, that's what, you know, that would, you know, that affected you probably or affected me more than other, other times, I guess. Yeah. What do you think practically speaking are some of the things that you utilized to, I guess, just you're describing a, a very quick bounce back or, or the ability to kind of see the bigger picture. But yeah, I, th- I think, you know, particularly in the military, you, there's this kind of stovepipe hierarchy and and it can be very lonely at times. I mean, they talk about, you know, there's no more lonely position on the ship than being the captain of the ship. I don't I didn't. That wasn't the case for me. I didn't feel like 
I mean, I knew that could be the case. I think I can see why that happens. I always try to surround myself by confidence, right? Like my, my senior enlisted, my command master chief or the XO. Um, and we, you know, to the point where we got together every day for coffee, as an example, no matter what we were doing to kind of talk through the day. But also we kind of, we can let down our guard a little bit. We can, you know, not talk with the rank you might feel forced to when you're outside walking around. And, and I think that was, I think that strength, we call it the triad in the military and the Navy, you know, those mm-hmm. three, the CO, the XO and the command master chief, essentially the three people that are, you know, influence operations and culture more than anybody else on the ship. Um, so I think no matter what was going on, I tried to leverage that, that triad, those, you know, whether I was found myself as the CO or the XO, I knew that those, that was the, the team I needed to, you know, when I couldn't call home and talk to my wife. I could talk to these three, you know, these two people, um, you know, and even, you know, we had COVID on the ship. Those are the, th- you know, the, t- the three of us talked every day about what we were doing, what's going on, or, you know, earlier in my career when things happen or airplanes didn't come back, you'd, you know, that's kind of the group you would talk to, to, and, and that, that trusted group is important. And I'd argue any leader that, that consider finds himself lonely or finds themselves in situations with no one to share, they really need to figure out how to change that, f- surround themselves by the right people they can trust and be willing to be open because we're all, in the end of the day, human. We all have emotions and strengths and weaknesses and we're always stronger together. Um, don't think just because you're a leader, you have to be tough all the time. Like it's okay to open up in the right setting and, and help and get, get help or ask people for, you know, bounce things off or share, whatever the case may be. Yeah. I have a thousand other questions. You brought up COVID. I was, you know, in a supporting a soft unit at the time and every day was different. I mean, every day rules would change and regulations would change. And, um, but we were on land. We were not all, um, in close quarters, you know, out to sea. So I know that people probably, experienced on the news the sensationalism of um everything that that you went through with with covid but that's an extremely unique circumstance yeah it was yeah i mean like like the rest of the world the military the navy was trying to figure out how to handle this exactly and information's changing and and folks just were making the best decisions they could with the information they had i you know i think it's important one you know again one of the reasons i wrote the book was to make sure and dispel any rumors or myths that i was angry at the military or there's an assumption that I'd be bitter, you know, for those that followed the story on the Roosevelt. I, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you just make the best decision you can for the right, right. reasons. And, and, right. and not everybody you work for is going to have the same perspective. They're going to make different decisions and you can, it's okay to disagree. Mm-hmm. We should be respectful of one another. We should treat everybody with the, the respect from the experience they have. But, um, but I wasn't bitter. And again, the, like I said, the Navy is still a family business for us. So if I, if I was really bitter, I would have, I don't know, we would have done something else. We would have, found a different thing and I wouldn't let my kids join the military or serve in the Navy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was just hard all around. So, yeah. um, but it's so neat to hear you say that. Cause even, you know, some folks with some different experiences come away with a sense of, um, uh, maybe like the larger administration, let them down. Um, yeah. so I like your perspective on it. So your book surf when you can is, it's just that what we've been speaking of is a reflection of your life, career, and commitment to do the right thing. What initially catalyzed you to write it? This is your first book, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was a math <laughs> major, so to be fair, yeah. I'm, a, I'm not a fast writer. Um, no, I think it, it really was to kind of, you know, give credit to all the folks I was I served with, and whether in the Navy or 
the foreigners, you know, the Italians I served with. And, and I want to just recognize and, and bring attention to all the amazing people that I was lucky enough to, to be on the team with. And then to share, I want, you know, there's so many great lessons I feel like I learned that, that I knew were well beyond the military. I knew it was, uh, things that I had been taught by my mentors and leaders that, that worked for me. And, and I thought they were relevant beyond the military. I mean, and like we said, it's the military is a small percentage of society, but I think there's a lot you can learn from that, that small percentage. And, um, because of the high risk environment the military operates in and some of the unique challenges, you know, what works in that kind of crucible of high operational risk areas, I think, works even more so to, you know, across the larger spectrum of society, whether it's business or nonprofit or education or, you, you know, you name it. So, and, and, and obviously any, any aviator likes to tell stories. So it was an opportunity to tell <laughs> stories and uh, along the way and that I thought, you know, it would be good to pass along. I felt like it was, I learned a lot and I thought there were interesting things to learn. And I felt like I'd hate to just sit on them and, and not share them and that, that they resonate with people and they can, they can take them on board. Yeah. It's interesting, I guess, from a reader's perspective, how often I found myself reading your words about kind of setting your ego aside in order essentially to learn each of these awesome lessons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the military is a, there's a certain stigma about the military. That's all about discipline and toughness. And you have to be, I mean, you have to be tough and you have to be disciplined to be military. That's how you, that's how we're good at what we do and what you expect. Um, but it's kind of like philosopher, like you know, Marcus Aurelius. You can be strict with yourself, but you can also be gentle with others, right? And I think, I think for me, you know, I learned the importance of discipline and, and adherence to rules and regulations, and we operate in that environment. But I also thought it was about you know how you could lead in that environment too, and, and it's okay to treat people with that kind of golden rule with the respect that you'd want to have. Um, and so for, yeah, for, it, kind of, it worked for me at least. I felt everyone's got to lead in their own way and you can't lead like anybody else other than yourself. But I think it's okay to be, to be kind, to be nice. You, know, you still be tough, right? You can still hold people accountable and have high standards, but you can also do it cordially and, and you can do it in a way that people are inspired to, to follow or to do what you're asking them to do. Cause in the, the day when the bullets are flying, right? It's, it's not probably apple pie and American flag. It's probably the people you're next to that you want to fight for, for real, right? You're going to put your life on the line for, and that means you have had a positive culture and it's that commodity of trust within that culture. That's going to enable those folks to do amazingly challenging things like sail into harm's way or, you know, go into enemy territory when there's high risk, you wouldn't do it for any other reason. You wouldn't do it if your boss was a jerk. Right. You might be, but (laughs) you might have to. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, but you wouldn't yeah. do it. For, I don't think you'd do it as effectively. How about that? That's probably fair. Absolutely. You know, yes. You talk about being deliberate about changing some of that old school culture from just basically everyone does what they're told and who knows what's going on on the inside yeah. to this more like relationship based, um, having empathy and understanding. That sounds so much more complex. It is. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, culture, I mean, there's no like script, right? Or recipe on how to build the culture you want. Um, and it's different for everybody. I think, and I think changing culture, like we were trying to do in that one case is definitely challenging, right? Cause you have people that maybe the other people like the old culture. Maybe they, they became to be successful in that culture and now they feel threatened because we're trying to change something they're used to. And, that, and you can apply that to today's society in many ways too, why people feel threatened. You know, they've succeeded in one culture, you know, maybe a new culture is going to mean that they're not going to succeed. But, but I, I think that's what makes 
changing a culture and, and changing the direction of an organization is, is hard without a doubt. It's not black and white. Um, it's also hard if you don't have buy-in from the top down. I mean, I've been in organizations where I knew the culture wasn't great. I knew exactly what I think it should look like, but I didn't have buy-in from the CEO or the CEO of the ship or the squadron. And, and then it's tough, right? Cause then every day is a battle and you're like, this is not how I would do it, but I'm not in charge. So how do you support the person in charge? How do you maximize their effectiveness? How do you still take care of your crew without just throwing the towel in? And that's, um, and that is complex and hard. And, and I'd argue I've learned that it's just sometimes easier to be in charge. Like when you're in charge, you can, you can make things, you can change everything you want uh, for good or bad. Uh, ideally you've got a sounding board and people to help you along the way. But the hardest position is when you're not in charge and mm-hmm. you know, things aren't going right. And you're trying to make a change for the better, like a cultural change, then, 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 then it becomes complex and, and there's probably no one recipe for success there. You just have to kind of feel it out and build relationships and be patient too. I think that's the other thing is big change takes time. You know, it takes time to set, takes time to make sure it exists when you leave, which is the ultimate goal of any positive culture. But it takes, yeah, it definitely takes time and patience. Yeah. You talked a lot too about um, the importance of building a foundation of trust through sometimes some acts that were pretty, they could have been sacrificial. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. your part, anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, trust is the commodity of, you know, uh, of, a, of a good positive culture, right? And it's that same commodity that you cash in when you have to, you know. So I, I always thought as a leader, when you had the opportunity to take care of your sailors, you let your, your team take extra liberty, like go to a major family event, like a kid's graduation, those kind of things that you can support operationally. That, that shows that you're treating people with respect that builds trust. And then, you know, and you don't do it transactionally. You don't do it because you know, someday you're going to cash in, but, but over time that builds the trust you need. So when you have to say, you know what, we're going to have to work extra hard this weekend because of X, Y, Z. Then I think if you've done it right, people understand that you don't do it all the time because you, you know, that that you're going to give them time when you can, or you're going to take care of them when you can, but there might be times when you have to cash in and say, Hey, I, I really need you guys to work this weekend or, we've extended deployment by three months or six months, whatever the case may be. And that's, that's when you, that is not the time to build trust. That's at that point you're too late. Hopefully it's already there and you've got it in the bank and you've, uh, and you, you've built that and and grown that to the point where, you know, you can use that uh, to help the organization get through those tougher times. Yeah. I've heard it said that mission first, but people are the priority. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I always said it differently. I always just said people first, mission always. Right. Meaning that we all understand the mission, but as a leader, you know, you're, you've got to take care of your people or the mission won't matter. So I used to try to reiterate that way. It's, it's people first, mission always. I mean, we join the military understanding the mission. We understand when, when called upon, we will go and sail into harm's way. We'll get shot at or we'll shoot back on behalf of our nation. But, so as a leader, since you don't generally get to make those decisions on whether you're going to sail or start a war, um, you better take opportunity to take care of your people. So when the time comes, they understand that. So that's, that was my, I always try to say that that way, I guess people first mission always. Mm-hmm. It's playing the long game though, you know? Um, yeah. But it's built up day to day. I've just, you know, I've, been able to see lots of leaders again say it first like of course the mission's first of course but people matter people are the mission there's no mission without the people um but it's really their day-to-day behaviors that spell out their true beliefs about (laughs) yeah (laughs) no i totally yeah 
And I like that aspect. It's the long game, right? That's, you know, you're not just trying to run people to the ground and then spit them out and, you know, chumo spit them out and, and replace them. You can't do that. So you play the long game because in the end, life is more of a, a marathon, I guess, and a sprint, um, particularly in the military when we, we are always prepared and ready to go into battle and combat, but that day might never come, but you want to be ready when it does. Um, you know, particularly you think about where we are in today's world, we're, we're training, preparing for some, you know, always these major potential conflicts with near peer, you know, adversaries. The day may never come. Hopefully it never comes. Um, right. But you can't treat it like it's always going to happen tomorrow because you're going to burn people out. And then if it ever does happen, you're going to be left with people that just, you know, maybe don't care anymore. So I think you have to have that long game view as a, you know, when you're, in, when you're a leader in charge and that's again, military or the business world, right. Or your, or your nonprofit that you work at, you've got to think of the long game and uh, that's probably always a better perspective. Yeah. And sometimes uh, it helps you see that what looks like a fire is really just <laughs> a match right, of right. Life from, yeah. from a match. <laughs> Well, what do you? Yeah, I always, that- I always just said like where there's no fire, there's like not, we're all firefighters in the Navy. But I, I actually say in my current job in the nonprofit world, I say we are not firemen. Like I don't want to run around always putting out fires. Like that's if we think it's a fire, we better be. You know, there might be times when we have to react or call nine one one, or but most of the time we don't need to react like we're firemen. Like we can take a, we can take a pause and look at this with a with a long view on how to best prevent this from happening again. And and it's it's helped a little bit. Otherwise, it's just. Life work becomes too stressful, right? If you're always just running around putting out fires, as they say. Yeah. And then you might lose the focus on keeping the main things, the main things. Yes. Can you, now that you've told us a little bit about um, Veterans Village of San Diego, can you talk more about just how you came to to be in that organization and, and what you guys are trying to do for the world? Yeah. So I, I retired last summer um, and actually I started flying for a major airline and th- through a, a family a tragedy, family event, you know, I had a sister that passed away who had been battling cancer for a couple of years. I took a long leave of absence from the airline um, and through that kind of reflective period kind of said, you know, as great as flying is, and I go back to why I joined the military was to fly. Yeah. Um, it was a reminder that I didn't, you know, I didn't stay for the flying and I didn't necessarily want to fly the rest of my my life. So um, through that, there was a there's a large nonprofit here in San Diego, and uh, some folks reached out to me to to say, hey, you, you know, you've you've got some experience running operations, and you understand how big organizations work. Um, and so yeah, so I, I started working at Veterans Village in San Diego. They've been around for forty years and focused on you know local veteran issues, particularly veterans that are in extremists that are homeless on the street. And there's several hundred here in the San Diego area. Um, like many other parts of the country and then, and veterans that struggle with drug addiction and mental health. And we try to get them back on their feet, bring them back in, bring them in the organization, place to live, get them food cleaned up, um, get them some treatment counseling and then try to get them a job and then back out there so they can continue to do great things. And, and so it's, I find it rewarding. There's a lot of similarities in a nonprofit world uh, to military service. You, you know, you don't join the nonprofit world to get rich. Um, it's about <laughs> service and it's about, you know, you're rich in a different ways, I guess. You're not, you know, it's not monetary, but you're rich because you, you do some things I think that are pretty rewarding. And so a nonprofit, generally you're, you're surrounded by those kind of people that are doing it because they want to make a difference. Um, and today's environment where it's keeping up with the Joneses or you look at San Diego where it's an expensive place to live, um, those that choose nonprofit, especially the younger generations that are doing this. And this is their first, you know, their career path. I mean, my hat's really off to them because that is a, that is just, is, there's no different than that than there is to sign up to go serve in the military. They are serving mm-hmm. in a different way right. in their local community. And 
And so as a leader, it's great because I have these people that are, again, they're doing it for service for something bigger than themselves. And, and we're helping out something I'm familiar with, which is, you know, better in issues here in San Diego. So I find that, um, I find it rewarding. It's busy. It's, it's hard work. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm home every night, but I'm, you know, I'm busy and it's, uh, and some days it, it certainly conflicts with my desire to surf every day, but, um, <laughs> but it's, but it's been good, pretty good work. And, you know, I don't know that I'll do it forever, but right now I enjoy it. And I, I'm learning a lot as well about how to run a nonprofit and, and the business aspect of it, which is also equally important. But, uh, yeah, so we do, you know, we help out veteran families. We actually, I think we help out about 3000 people a year is our, is our current kind of number, you know, veteran families that are struggling or, or veterans on the street and, um, uh, ideally making a difference. So, but it's, that whole homelessness and drug stuff, that's, that is a complex problem that, you know, that there's no one easy solution to. It takes time, money, political will. It takes, you know, public will, all that stuff. And, and none of that happens fast. So it really takes patience. And unlike in the military where you want to seize the objective and you want to execute your mission um, in quick order, this isn't a hill you take. This isn't a ship you sink or a enemy you defeat. It's like this complex thing that'll certainly be around after I'm done doing it. But it's right. so all you t- try to do is make a make a difference every day and try to help out one veteran at a time. And and I I, I get I spend a lot of time at our main campus and I usually bring a baseball glove or two and I'll play catch with a couple of the veterans and and just to, to hear their stories because you realize you know they all joined to serve at some point in their life and then. After the service, they tripped, fell down a hole, whatever the case may be, you know, the analogy. And yeah. they found themselves in a dark place and, and they all appreciate the chance to kind of kind of the helping hand to get back up. And so that's that I get accused of playing more baseball than other work that I should be doing. But that's one of my <laughs> most enjoyable things is playing catch with the veterans. It can't be more important than anything else going on. What have you learned yeah. from hearing some of those stories? Uh, you know, everybody is different. Everyone's got a different story. Um, in many cases, you know, when they, when they had these challenges and struggles, they didn't probably have the same network that, you know, maybe you or I do that. Um, and so whether it's family and not, not everybody has a family around them all the time or friends. So when they, you know, found themselves in these challenging situations of living on the street or the drug addiction stuff, they generally just didn't have the same network around them. And it kind of just mm-hmm. a good reminder that, you know, ideally you're building relationships now so that if you struggle or, or think about people, you know, that might be struggling, you know, you know, how do you, how do you help them out? So they don't get in those situations, you know, it's the preventative nature. So all of them will admit that, um, you know, it's again, mental health and drug abuse is much more complex than just a, a party gone wild and find yourself on the street. So they admit they have other challenges, but they also all generally admit that they don't necessarily didn't have a strong network around them. So when they needed yeah. help to ask for it. So, so now they are asking for it and, and, yeah. and there are people out there to help, which is good, which is a good sign. I mean, them asking for help and, and willing to take help is generally the biggest and most important step in their recovery. So right. where that's what we right. try to do is provide that, that first big step for them. That's so cool. All right. So I'm gonna, just going to ask you one more question, yeah. Brett. And then let you go. But I'm so grateful for your time today. Um, on this podcast, I always ask the same question last because I I just love hearing what each individual has to say about it. But let's say there is that person listening to you. Maybe they wanted to fly or maybe they saw Rambo. You know, it's mm-hmm. a different movie, yeah. different urge, but they feel um, some kind of call to serve, but they don't know where or how to get started. What would your advice be for them? 
I, I would tell them to one, there's a lot of information out there, but I always say that, you know, I'd like to, I like to read. I like, I mean, I look back at, you know, books I read when I was a kid about aviation and the military. So there's an education piece and that's, you know, I'd, I'd say find ways to learn about it. I'd see they're reading about it. Not, not like find on TikTok a, a feed, but like read a book <laughs> about it where you really get mm-hmm. to, to learn about it. Find people you know that have served. And again, I think I now I look at service differently. It's not just military. It's also your local community. Find a way to volunteer. Um, I, you know, I don't know a single nonprofit out there that doesn't have a volunteer program or need assistance. And, right. and it's, it doesn't mean it's as easy as just showing up. You have to sign up or there's some other stuff required. But I spent every time I could during my, my 30 years in the military, I, if, if I had the chance, I would go volunteer. I'd do like Habitat for Humanity or Feeding the Homeless. And uh, one, I helped, helped me learn about my local community at the time, which is always in transition, obviously, in the military, you're moving around. And and two, you can you surround yourself by other people like you'd serve in the military that are just there to help people. So I would tell them, you know, read about it, ask a lot of questions, go share espresso with somebody that's been in the military, um, but also volunteer. I think there's a lot you can learn from volunteering. And that way, it's not just military service, but it's a way to serve your larger or your, your more, I guess, your more local community, which I think is important and which we need, I think, more people to do to, to address the issues at the local level, which is really where we can make a, a big impact. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, and keep yourself open. You may just learn a thing or two. And you might learn along the way, yeah. No matter what you do, I guarantee Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything you want to leave folks with today before we conclude our conversation? No, I just I appreciate the time today. Um, again, I, I, w- I felt blessed that I was got to serve for 30 years in, in the Navy and, and loved everything about it and, and learned a lot along the way. Um. And I, and I hope I can carry, take those same lessons that I learned and share them with, for those that want to read the book, but also as I go forward in the nonprofit world for now. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I think again, there's one thing I learned through all that. It's again, it's life's about relationships. And, and that means, mm-hmm. you know, meet people, talk to people, travel. I, you'll be better for it. You'll learn, you'll learn about yourself from it. And, and, you know, I think that's, I think we could all, everyone could do more of that. And I think we're all be better for it. And so, but uh, no, I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much.